Okay, I'm going to pass out um, a, a PowerPoint. Um, I do try not to talk too, too much along the lines of PowerPoint, so more as a guide for the conversation, um, because we all can be PowerPointed to, yeah. Just, PowerPoints are wonderful, but um, I think we've hit a point in time where everyone began to lecture from the PowerPoint as opposed to doing a presentation and having a PowerPoint as a Oh, I apologize. There weren't. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Okay. <clears throat> and then I'm also passing out a pamphlet that we'll talk about. It's um, a victim witness program. This is the one out of Grafton County, but every county has a victim witness program in New Hampshire, um, and there's a victim witness program out of the Department of Justice, which is um, the brand is found. Thank you. Got one. Yes, I this idea I did for the thing. So does every state have that? Like does Vermont have it or no? Vermont does have a victim witness program, but it's set up a little bit differently than New Hampshire's. Um, but mo most states do. It's actually, um, this is actually kind of an interesting story out of the United States Supreme Court. Back in the 70s, the United States Supreme Court had a pretty seminal decision where they basically said victims have no rights in our criminal justice system, um, which was a little discouraging because Victims had rights back in the Code of Hammurabi, you know? <laughs> like, so for us to somehow reach in the United States the 1970s with no rights for victims. But um, what the Supreme Court was saying was there was no statutes and there's no constitutional right. So technically there's no rights. And what it did was it created this huge movement to get those rights. And everybody went, you've got to be kidding. So most states enacted a victim's bill of rights. Um, and then most states and have federal <coughs> programming, I mean, have programming through the Victims' Bill of Rights, which is partially federally funded. That's where the federal government encouraged the states to do this by funding partially some of those programs. So, um, so most states do have them, um, but not all. I, well, I can't say all, only because I've never been to all 50 states, I've never researched it, but I, I remember reading a law review article saying, you can just pass one down. But we'll go more into victims' rights in this presentation as well. So um, I'll introduce myself, and then I'll have Brandon introduce himself. Um, but we're here today to talk about senior fraud prevention, um, how to keep your money and identity safe from theft. Um, I actually got a call as recently as yesterday on this very topic, um, someone calling in with some concerns about this. We have a lot of um, concerns statewide on senior fraud prevention nationally and certainly in Grafton County as well. And we'll be talking about some case scenarios that we experienced in Grafton County. Um, but that's why we're here today. We're here from the New Hampshire Department of Justice um, and then the Grafton County Attorney's Office. So first, a little bit of introductions, and I'll have Brandon start. Good morning, everybody. My name is Brandon Garrod. As uh, Laura told you, I work at the Attorney General's Office, which is also called the Department of Justice. I've been there for a few months. Uh, coming up on four and a half months, I think. And I am working with, um, as you can see, Sunny Mulligan-Shea, who unfortunately couldn't be here this morning. But the two of us form the Financial Abuse and Elder Exploitation Unit at the Attorney General's Office. We're a two-person unit that's dedicated entirely to um, preventing fraud to the extent possible, to investigating fraud that's already happened, and to prosecuting those that are um, 
uh, found out to be perpetrating fraud on the elder citizens of the state. So we are a prosecuting body at its core, but we're also an educational body, and that we're trying to, A, get out to speak with um, elder citizens of the state, to inform them about what's going on in the state in terms of a widespread epidemic of um, elder exploitation, financial exploitation that's occurring. We're also working very closely with um, law enforcement as well as county attorney's offices to make sure that the entire state is aware of the issue and is working <coughs> with local seniors, with local law enforcement to crack down and hopefully one day reduce and prevent elder exploitation in the state. So from a county attorney level, we are beyond thrilled that the AG's office has a unit. And it is a unit of two, um, so we realize that um, it's still a unit. It's still a unit. <laughs> well, no, not only is it still a unit, but it's expertise that is available to anybody. So let's say we call down and um, Brandon and Sonny are already working four cases that day. They still can guide us. They still can say, okay, have you done A, B, C, D, and E? I can't get up to Grafton County and draft your search warrant today, but I can help you and walk you through as an officer who perhaps has never handled a case like this before. Also, as part of that training piece, he can start creating in every county those experts in the counties. So it really, um, the beauty of New Hampshire, well, one of the many beauties of New Hampshire, um, is that we can create initiatives and make it spread statewide by just creating those contacts. Um, and so having that contact at the Attorney General's office of somebody who's just focused on this issue. Uh, Sunny Shea Mulligan is the victim witness advocate on this unit. So her job is to help victims. Um, and that's just another amazing resource. Um, so we're very, very lucky to have this, and that really is how we combat these. Um, as you'll learn, um, one of the problems with the criminal justice system is what I call we can't get blood from a stone. So if somebody steals money from somebody, and they spend that money, and it's gone, and they have no resources, we can order them to pay it back. But it's gone, and they don't have any money. So what they have is a legal obligation to pay it back. You have, um, you can't go discharge it in bankruptcy, for example. So you'll, you'll continue to have that legal obligation to pay it back. Um, but you can't incarcerate somebody for being poor either under the Constitution. So as long as they provide their financial affidavit, they do a percentage of whatever income they have. If they don't have Oops. much income, you're not going to see that. much. Okay. You're not going to see much restitution. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well. Apologize for showing up late. Oh gosh, no problem. Can I get that? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so prevention is key. I mean, it, it is the heart of our criminal justice system is to prevent crimes, and that's one of our biggest things today is to give some tips, some flags to go, whoa, we're going down the wrong path here, and there's easy ways to work on that when you do feel like you're going down the wrong path. Um, so I am the county attorney in Grafton County. Uh, for those of you, I mean, does everybody know who, what the attorney general's office is in the state of New Hampshire? So they're, they're like the chief law enforcement agency. Like they're the ones um, that um, the attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer for the state of New Hampshire. Um, and the people who work under him have statewide jurisdiction to combat crime. Most commonly in the news, you'll see them in murder cases, for example. They handle all the, uh, the um, homicides, the intentional homicides. Um, the county attorneys, we handle all the crimes um, but murder. Um, so we have concurrent jurisdiction over elderly financial exploitation. Um, but we work really well together. Um, there's no power struggles or anything like that. Everyone kind of jumps in and, and works together. 
um, with 10 counties in New Hampshire, it's the same thing. So there's only 10 counties reaching out to the AG's office. We have really a lot of direct communication <laughs> with the AG's office, and we're really fortunate in that regard. So the nice thing you'll learn, too, is you can kind of start anywhere you feel comfortable. Start with the county attorney's office. We're going to reach out to the AG's office. Start with the AG's office. They're going to reach out to us. We'll make sure you're taken care of. So, okay. So, yes, yeah, so I'm the county attorney. I've been for, I, know, I guess, like eight years now. Um, and um, my background initially was on um, crimes of violence. Uh, when I um, became a prosecutor, I became a prosecutor in 93. Um, left when my kids were little uh, because the court schedule, criminal work, is a little tough with little ones. Um, but then when my kids hit school age, I went back to prosecuting, and I've been prosecuting ever since. Um, and we've, we've had a number of um, elder financial abuse cases. We had one a number of years ago that very regrettably wasn't fitting under our <laughs> statutory scheme. And um, the AG's office and our victims actually went and testified before the legislature, worked to improve our laws. And that's one of the laws you're going to learn about today. I've worked with, we represent your area. The last time I was here, we didn't have this law that's specific to elder financial exploitation that fortunately fills in so many of the gaps that we had before and makes us better able to respond to situations that are just wrong. Um, so, very happy to be here with everybody. Yeah. And normally I'd ask everybody to introduce themselves, but we're being recorded, so I've been told not to do that. <laughs> and one of the things you'll hear is being very careful about what's on the internet. Um, they put this on the internet, we want to be very careful about your identities. Okay, so, um, like I said, I don't want to like, I prefer for us to have a conversation with you, um, and Sometimes we're going to see that we kind of already covered some slides. Um, that's one of the things um, Brandon has already kind of told you a little bit about his unit, but I'll have him take over this slide and talk about the Medicaid fraud unit too. Yeah, so at the Attorney General's office, we're broken down into there's an awful lot of units. We <laughs> focus on an awful lot of things. There's a little bit of overlap here because the, the Medicaid fraud unit prosecutes all the same sort of cases that we prosecute, except uh, their name is very misleading. They do very little. Um, actual Medicaid fraud and just fraud that occurs in facilities that receive Medicaid benefits. So if there's elder financial exploitation that occurs in a nursing facility that receives Medicaid benefits, it's prosecuted by that unit. All of the other cases are prosecuted by my unit, at least the ones that are done by the Attorney General's office. Uh, we work very closely with one another, so although there's only two people in my unit, there are three attorneys in the Medicaid fraud unit. All of us are completely dedicated to prosecuting different forms of elder financial exploitation that occurs, whether it's in the community or whether it's in a uh, nursing facility or other facility that receives Medicaid benefits. Can we click ahead? Sure, click ahead. So this is where we do a little bit of an overview of what we're covering today. Um, one of the things we want to cover is why seniors are frequent targets of financial exploitation. The other is the new financial exploitation law, which really is our best tool to help seniors that are, have been targeted. Types of financial scams that we see, real cases from Grafton County, because I just find talking about real cases helps absorb information. Um, and then how to protect yourself from becoming victims. Um, and then as far as why seniors are targeted, the number one reason is people want money. I mean, it's greed. At its heart, it's greed. Um, I also feel from a philosophical level 
that there is this idea that the next generation is entitled to the previous generation's money. Um, and that this is really just kind of like good tax evasion. You know, like we'll maximize not having the inheritance tax by passing on the resources earlier. Um, and um, I happen to ethically have problems with that. Um, you know, I know when my, my dad was very ill, everybody was like, well, you know, you need to be looking at assets. And, and I was like, well, it's simple. My mom gets everything. Like, this is not something that is complicated. Um, well, you know, for tax purposes. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> are we really letting our tax system dictate things like that at times like this? Now, that doesn't mean there isn't good reasons to do things for tax reasons, meaning estate planning is very important. But I do see this kind of theme in Grafton County on the cases I have that somehow there's this entitlement to this money that I don't have a senior who's done estate planning in this way and, and has been really part of even the discussion. It's just everyone's kind of took it upon themselves to say, well, we're going to get it eventually anyway, so really what's the big deal if we dip into it now without including the senior in that discussion? Um, I think those are two very, very different things, um, and um, and I do think it is this like mindset that I see some defendants have that this is okay. Um, it is not. It isn't even remotely okay. Um, but that's kind of this mindset that I see. But the bottom line is people are trying to access resources and access money. And another reason why I think of seniors are targeted. <laughs> What you're going to hear is that often the people that are targeting seniors are people that know them and that they trust. And it, it's really unfortunate because you know, these seniors are the people that have worked their whole lives, that have built you know, a strong nest egg that they're going to depend on for the rest of their lives. And people that they trust recognize that they're a trusting person, that they trust that person, and they use that to their own benefit to get access to that money. So they have the money, they have the trust, and people in that position, um, whether it's, you know, unfortunately, very often it's a child, um, sometimes a sibling, sometimes a friend, um, sometimes a neighbor, they see an opportunity and they take it. And it, it's really unfortunate because it really does show some of the, the, the worst in people that they would exploit a position of trust like that. But um, as you're going to see, it's that exact situation that has prompted the state to pass a new law that addresses just that and has created you know, a job for me and Sonny at the AG's office to combat this because it is happening so commonly all throughout the state. And a lot of, um, a lot of senior citizens don't even realize it's happening until it's too late. In that whole, that's where we see our victims most upset at all. I mean, they're certainly worried about their future. They're worried they don't have resources to care for themselves. They're worried about what's going to happen to themselves. But time and time again, it's that somebody they trusted violated that trust. That hurts more than anything. Um, and um, it's really sad. And it's sad trying to work through that issue with a victim who is like, really, that caretaker, the one that I really liked, that's the one who was stealing from me? No, that can't be. Then you see when future caretakers are in the home, they're a lot more nervous. You know, so it really just changes your life completely. Um, and so again, prevention is key because we don't want to see people have to change their life and not trust people and so forth. So. Excuse me, can I just yeah. say, um, I just wondered, um, wh what kind of future can they look forward to? The criminals, I mean. Um, you, do, you take them to court, you have to prove it all. Yeah. That kind of thing. And of course, if they have no money, that... Uh, yeah. It's still against the law, right? Oh, absolutely. And so, yeah, our criminal justice system, we have what I call tools in our toolboxes. 
Um, so there's a number of different tools when somebody's committed a crime. Okay. A, we have to prove it, and we'll go into that, but presuming we can prove it and they're found guilty, um, are, there is incarceration. I mean, sometimes people should be incarcerated because they've done something wrong and they need to be punished. Um, there's a lot of news about this country over-incarcerating, and so there's a lot of concern about that. But certainly, that is appropriate sometimes. I mean, simple as that. Um, and um, in white-collar crime, that's where I think it's even more appropriate. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this is someone who did this out of greed. Um, that's actually the people who do respond to incarceration. Um, the other thing is probation um, or parole, which is supervised release. So you're released, and they're kind of watching you. <coughs> the other thing is there's no contact orders with the victims. Some of the things we see Sunny do um, with, as a victim advocate is working to what I call stop the flow, meaning, um, okay, so we have some concerns about assets being diverted. Let's get a plan into the future. So whatever's left is safe. Work with the Office of Public Guardian, work with trusted family members, work on a system of reporting, of accounting, and things like that. Um, community service is something else we've ordered defendants to do. Um, but in our financial fraud cases, we generally request incarceration um, because we don't see money. Um, it's, it's, it's water under the bridge, and it's been very planned. You know, I mean, like, this is not, I, um, I used some drugs and under the influence did something. This is very planned behavior. Now, some might be an addict, which is why they needed to steal from their family. And those are things that we um, first reach out to the victims. You know, what's your input? What do you think should happen? Um, we don't put the burden on victims to decide what a sentence should be. It's not their burden, but their input is vital. And everybody's different. Um, you know, some victims say, I just, this is just too hard. I don't want to be part of sentencing. You make that decision. Totally fine. We're happy to do that. Some victims have very clear ideas of what they're looking for. Um, and um, that input is invaluable. Um, whatever the input is. So we basically reach out to the victims. We have what the law lets us do. Um, and, um, and then we come up with a plea offer that we think is reasonable in light of the situation. So. And one other piece, um, we, the next thing we're going to do is actually talk about the law itself. Um, just having a conviction under this law often can do more than incarceration or anything else can. It's a felony offense in almost all cases. A lot of these people work as caretakers. Uh, some of these people work, you know, handling other people's money as bankers, you know, uh, working with titles, things like that. If you have a felony conviction, it makes it so that they probably will not be able to do that type of work anymore, and they will no longer have access to other people's money. They won't have access to additional senior citizens. And so, you know, ultimately, when it comes down to the judge ultimately decides, unless they agree, uh, the judge ultimately decides whether they go to jail or not. The way I like to look at it is whether they go to jail or not, whether they pay the money back or not, at least they have been labeled as what they are, which is a crook. Yeah. And it's a crook that took advantage of the elderly population. And for the rest of their life, you know, that's going to be something that's considered before they're given a job working with the elderly or before they're given a job working handling other people's money. So I think it's very important that, you know, regardless of the rest of the punishment, at least these people are held accountable in that, you know, it's, it's theft and they're labeled as a thief, and everybody knows exactly what they did and that they were convicted of it. So I, I think that's probably the most important piece yeah. of it. Yeah, and you can't get a license to work in a lot of jobs if you have prior convictions. Exactly. You can do all the training, you can know all the knowledge, right. but you won't get certification for it. Exactly. 
I have one caretaker in Grafton County that keeps filing um, to get a pardon on her conviction because she wants to go back and continue to work as a caretaker. And we're like, no. And I mean, it's been almost 10 years now, and I keep getting kind of letters every, every so often. So I know for that defendant, that was a heavy hit. Um, and she should not be allowed to be a caretaker. So, okay. So this new law, very, very exciting new law. It's New Hampshire um, RSA 631 colon 9 and 10. It's called Financial Exploitation of Elderly, Disabled, or Impaired Adults. And one of the things I like to point out, like uh, my mom's turning 80 this year. She out kayaks me, outruns me, <laughs> can do anything faster in her head than me, you know. Um, but I look at it as a degree of respect um, that she has earned that. And so she has um, coverage under the statute that I don't have yet. <laughs> but um, but so, so a lot of times I think we think of elderly and we think infirm. And that really isn't the case. Um, you know, um, it's, um, it's, it's a level of you can't take advantage of this population because that is not the society we want. Um, so, is there a specific, <coughs> sorry, age where this, where That's you become elderly? 60. Oh, good. <laughs> what qualifies you as disabled? Basically, um, a disabled adult is defined as an adult that is incapable of taking care of himself. Oh, okay. Uh, disabled or impaired adult. So, you know, a, a lot of the times that's, you know, I, I know people over 60 can often take care of themselves. Like Lara said, they're afforded the special sort of protection just by, you know, their age. But a lot of senior citizens can't. And so the law, I think, looks to incorporate all of those and then all of those that are similarly situated in that position, but just haven't reached that age yet. So um, people that, you know, trust other people to handle their affairs for them. Um, and might not have the, the intellect or the ability to know that something is wrong or that they're being taken advantage of. That's the, the population that it looks to protect. Okay, so key points of the new law. Um, it, it came into effect on January 1st, 2015. And the first thing it does, it defines acts that constitute financial exploitation and gives clear guidance. And we'll go into that guidance. It makes it a crime to take or use an elder's assets for one's own benefit. So that's taken away one of the big excuses, which is, oh, they gave it to me, they just don't remember. Um, you know, if you've gotten something for nothing, you're gonna look at the statute pretty hard. Um, and makes it a crime to use undue influence, force, or coercion to take or gain control of an elder's personal property. Um, additional key points before I turn over the statute to Brandon. It imposes criminal penalties on offenders who know or should have known the victim is elderly, disabled, or impaired. It gives law enforcement concurrent jurisdiction with APS to investigate. APS is Adult Protective Services. So it kind of got us working a little bit closer with Adult Protective Services, which is good. And that it broadens protections against elder financial exploitation beyond incapacitated adults. Previously, we had this requirement of incapacitation and that was a really hard thing to prove from a criminal standpoint, because usually you found out about this after the fact. So maybe everybody agrees they're incapacitated now, but back six months ago were they incapacitated? Um, or put us in a position um, that I found hard as a prosecutor, which is I had to be arguing somebody was incapacitated in order to be under the statute, and it was somebody who really didn't want to hear that and didn't want to have to be labeled like that and shouldn't be labeled like that. 
So it really put everybody in a, in a really difficult place, and, and most importantly put victims in a difficult place. But without, without further ado, go ahead. So I'm going to go see if I can get the word recording down. So it's just by a little bit of background, Laura touched on this a little. Prior to this law being enacted, we as prosecutors in this state had a big problem and that when we saw this coming up, um, it didn't quite fit into our criminal code. The closest thing we had was theft, and theft in the state, you have to prove that somebody um, took uh, property of another with the purpose to deprive them of that property and obtained unauthorized control over that property. So it created basically a loophole for people who are powers of attorney, people who are trustees, or people that are in a fiduciary position where they're managing somebody else's money if it was ever called into question, well, what are you doing with all this money? They could always just say, well, I was doing things for them. I was doing it for them. You know, I was buying them this boat, and I was buying them this car, and you know, I was just reimbursing myself for all this money I spent on them. And we were left in a position where we couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they were taking the money with a purpose to deprive the elder person, because often um, the elder person is not mentally capable of knowing what's going on, and they often don't know what's going on, and sometimes they're not, unfortunately, they're not alive by the time they go to trial. So that's the problem that this statute was enacted to address. And I think it does a pretty good job. Uh, it applies in two situations. The first is exactly the one I was just talking about. It applies to people that have a fiduciary obligation to an elder or impaired adult. And a fiduciary obligation, it, most commonly is a power of attorney. Does everybody know what a power of attorney is? Uh, a power of attorney, a trustee, um, an executor um, can also be something we've been seeing um, quite rapidly at the Attorney General's office recently are financial advisors who are tasked with managing uh, elderly people or just anybody's. Uh oh. Yeah, keep on. People are that that sort of position where they're in a position of trust to handle the property of another person and to spend it or invest it for that person's benefit. So anybody that has that sort of relationship with an elderly person is going to fall under the first prong of this statute. And so if you have such an obligation, there's usually some sort of a document, you know, the written power of attorney, uh, the agreement between, you know, a person and a financial investor, um, or a trust agreement, there's usually some type of document that lays out what the person who's in that position can and can't do with the elderly person's money. And you know, these can be very broad. They can say, you know, I you know, give so-and-so permission to do you know, whatever's in my best interest, and it's just left at that. Sometimes they're very extensive bulleted lists where you know, they can invest my money, they can you know, pay my taxes, they can defend any action that's brought against me, they can invest in my children's college funds, and it goes on and on and on. If the specific purpose that the money is being used for is not on that list, it's a crime if they're doing it um, from here on out. So it no longer creates a position where an elderly person in drafting a power of attorney has to think of specifically putting in, and they can't do this, and they can't spend it for themselves, and they can't reimburse themselves for it. If it's not specifically on there saying that they can do something, the person is held accountable to only doing what's in that instrument. So for example, if you had just one line that said, um, I appoint this person as my power of attorney to do um, any actions that are in my best interest as it pertains to my um, health and well-being. If the person is then you know, 
taking money and you know reimbursing mm -hmm. themselves and saying that you know well I was out you know I, I picked up her medications and I drove over here and I did all these things and I was just reimbursing myself that no longer flies because the power of attorney doesn't say that they can reimburse themselves it gives them access to their money where they can spend the elderly person's money for their benefit and there'd be no reason why they need to reimburse themselves so it takes away what was so often used as an excuse which is you know I was doing it for their benefit or I was doing it you know to, to reimburse myself People are now held accountable when they sign on to uh, accept a fiduciary obligation to read the document, to understand exactly what's in it, and know that if they do anything that's not specifically authorized in that document, that they can face criminal penalties. And it gives us really, really broad range to hold, you know, almost all, there's almost no more loopholes where people can come up with excuses that would take them outside of the statute. So. Are the next one? Yes. And so that, that's the first prong of it. The second applies to everyone else. So there's no requirement of a fiduciary relationship for the second prong of this. Um, it's any time a person uses um, undue influence, harassment, duress, force, compulsion, coercion, those types of things to acquire an interest in an elderly person's property. So pressuring an elderly person to give them money um, saying that, you know, I'm in debt, I need money, please give me money, that kind of thing. We see that very often. You know, kids get into financial trouble, the elderly person, you know, maybe wants to help them a little bit, but, you know, then they get into this situation where they're harassed. They're basically, you know, every day there's a phone call, I need more money, I need more money, and their life savings slowly goes down. That's now a crime. You know, even though the elderly person is willingly giving that person money, um, they're actually writing the check for $1,000, here you go. But if it's the product of harassment or undue influence, you know, that's going to fall under the statute now, too. And it applies not only to people that are getting money or property from an elderly person, but also applies to people that use that type of pressure to create a fiduciary obligation, like a power of attorney. So the first step towards exploitation is usually getting that power of attorney, because it gives you full access to all of the elderly person's life savings and property. So now if you have a situation where undue influence or harassment or pressure is used by a child or by a friend that's you know, pushing a person saying, hey, you, know, you really can't take care of your own stuff anymore. I really think it would be in your best interest if you signed me on as a power of attorney. If we can prove in that position that an elderly person made that decision based on you know, undue influence or duress or force, even if they don't use the, even if they haven't taken any of the money for their own benefit, just the act of pressuring them into creating that relationship is enough to fall within this statute. And I like the word coercion in there, because I had it. That, my person who testified in front of the legislature, he was coerced. He was lied to. I need this money because of A, B, C, and D. And, um, and so that word coercion is, is one that we were happy to see in the legislation. Does anybody have any questions on any of that? Oh, I, I was just thinking, uh, what kind of oversight is there for um, a person who has the power of attorney? You're not going to like the answer. None. <laughs> There's right. none. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's the problem. I mean, it creates this opportunity. Uh, and power attorneys are a great thing. I mean, when, you, when you get to a certain point in your life, 
people don't want to be responsible for you know having to make sure their bills are paid or having to make mm -hmm. sure that you know the mortgage is paid and taxes are paid and all these other things and it's great that there's a vehicle where people can find a person they trust usually a kid or a friend and you know if the person agrees that you know their life their later years in life are made that much simpler because somebody they trust <laughs> is taking care of all that for them but unfortunately you know not everybody is good yeah. and it creates this just unsupervised no oversight opportunity where the only person that can you know hold the person accountable is the elderly person and often it's they trust them so much that they're sure. not checking up on it and you know hopefully you know, part a big part of what we're trying to do is get the word out to people that have power of attorneys people that create these kinds of you know don't just take a, a back seat to you know, this is, you know, it's great to have a power of attorney, but don't be in the dark. You know, check your bank account once in a while. Mm -hmm. Have a conversation with your power of attorney about what your money is going towards, about how much money is in the account, about whether, you know, um, too much money is being spent on something. And generally, if people are doing the right thing and are really acting in the best interest of the elderly person, they will sit down with, you know, all the statements and go through it line by line and, you know, be happy to show. But the first red flag that we see often is when the elderly person asks any questions, there's resistance. Mm -hmm. There's, oh, don't worry about that. Or, oh, we'll get to it later. Or, oh, you don't need to see that. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. Trust me. There's no reason for that unless there's something wrong. And so what Sunny and I are trying to do is really travel the state and meet with groups of elderly people and explain to them that, you know, while most of them have power of attorneys and they're a great thing, um, trust is good, not complete trust. Mm -hmm. um, be in, as involved as you possibly can, or as, you're, as much as you're willing to be, with just having that conversation and keeping an eye on how things are going. Most of the time, um, things will go great, but it, it's great to just be aware that this happens, and a little bit of awareness, I think, can go a long way in helping address this problem. That's good. Thank you. How about something more, so maybe you're going to address this. Um, I know of a case where a woman is in a nursing home, and someone has moved into her house, not paying rent, um, it, it's a you know distant family member, so mm -hmm. that's how they knew about it. Is the, what recourse does she have without? I mean, you know. It would depend on how that situation where she moved into the house came about. <laughs> so if a person just moved into the house, you know, didn't ask, you know, just opened the door and started living there one day, mm -hmm. that would not fall within this. That would be trespassing. trespassing. I mean, if okay. if the elderly person were to call and say, you know, I know you're in my mm -hmm. house, get out. I don't want you there, and they stayed, it'd be criminal trespassing. Okay. Um, if it was some type of coercion, you know, I, I'm homeless, I have nowhere else to go, can I please live in your house, you know, they're gonna, you know, I, I have all these people on the streets, it's a bad situation for, and the person really just doesn't want to pay rent and they're being lazy and mm -hmm. just want to live rent free, that would fall under this, I think. Okay. Thank you. And you had a question as well. Thank you. Thank you. This probably should wait till the end, but I just want to say that I'm really impressed by the judicial laws for the elderly in New Hampshire. I'm a Vermont resident, and I'm wondering if there's something comparable in Vermont, because I have a friend who has her mom living with her, and uh, this friend has a brother in Pennsylvania, and uh, this elderly woman has grandkids in Pennsylvania who have pressured her into giving her money. There have been extensive phone calls, and just what you're talking about. So um, I just I unfortunately can't. I don't. I know very little about the laws of Vermont. Okay. 
I know that there is a trend in this country that is recognizing this problem of elder exploitation and legislatively addressing it. I don't think Vermont has a specific elder exploitation statute. I think New Hampshire is in the minority of states that now do. There is a good chunk of states in this country that have specifically drafted laws to address it, but you know, it took us a long time. I, I think everybody will get there eventually, but um, I, I unfortunately can't speak to Vermont. I don't know, Larry, do you and know? The, well, what we can, I, I can't speak to Vermont laws either, um, but what I can do is refer you at the end of this presentation to our equivalent in Vermont. I don't know if they have a unit, but they certainly have an, an equivalent of elderly and adult services and law enforcement agencies and, and prosecutors, so we can do that. And I can say that one of the things they asked us not to do was take questions in the middle of the lecture, but wait till the end of the day. That's my fault. So. No, no, exactly. I like taking <laughs> questions during lectures. I think, again, it's more interactive. Um, but if we kind of say, well, take, take care of that later, that's why it's just kind of one of the requests we had. Um, okay, so I'll let you go into consent. What if somebody consents to being violated in the statute? And um, that's you know, something I touched on a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. um, Prior to this, <coughs> if there was consent, if the elderly person wrote that check, or the elderly person said, yeah, you can live in the house, or yeah, you can be power of attorney, there was really nothing we could do about it. Because it, it's not theft, it's not bribery, it's not, <coughs> you have a person asking an elderly person for something, and the elderly person saying, okay. So we, although we all felt this is really shady and feels really wrong, there's gotta be something we could do about it. Um, I used to be an assistant county attorney as well, and you know, we'd look at these cases and there was nothing we could do about it. We really didn't have much legal recourse. So now, that's not the case anymore. And what was even more frustrating too is a lot of times this comes up during um, when a will's probated. So a family member goes, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not here for money, but I thought there were more assets. And, um, and that put them in an awkward position because they were devastated they lost a loved one. Their issue wasn't money. But they were looking at this accounting going, something's wrong. Um, and then we're talking, they said, oh, they consented six months ago. And half the family was like, they weren't able to consent six months ago. And the other half was like, oh, sure they were. Proving it was almost impossible. So that was the other thing. A lot of times we're going backwards on these cases, trying to recreate something that happened six months ago or a year ago. And people would say, oh, they, they consented. And then some people would go, that's where got the gut instinct. This is just wrong. Um, but then we'd get doctor's records to see what the doctors were saying about their capacity. And doctors just had an annual physical with them. They weren't really evaluating for capacity. And um, it just made for a very messy situation. But it also was a situation where people felt bad. Um, and that something wrong happened, but no one can do anything about it because we can't prove it. So that's, that's why it's even better. Is it, this just takes that off the table. Six months ago, we don't have to worry about proving it anymore because consent is not a defense if we could show they lack capacity. Mm -hmm. so. a good faith exception. So, you know, <laughs> one thing that you know, is often a concern uh, when we're you know, prosecuting people, making them criminals, putting them in jail, is we don't want to hold people criminally responsible if they were doing the best that they could and were just you know, in over their heads. So, for example, you know, part of this statute involves you know, using money only for you know, the best interest of the person. If there's sort of a borderline decision about whether something really is in their best interest or isn't, uh, and you know, the person you know, maybe makes the wrong choice, but did so in good faith, was really trying to help the elderly person, maybe they made a bad investment, or you know, chose to use their money to, to put them in a, a nursing home that really wasn't good for them, 
those people are not going to fall within you know this statute. There, there might be other ramifications, such as you know removing them as power of attorney and finding somebody that's more qualified to do it. But what we don't want to do is hold people, make people criminals for doing the best they can, but just you know sometimes making bad choices. What we are you know looking to, to prosecute are the people that are intentionally doing things for their own benefit or for the benefit of somebody um, other than the elderly person. So there is a good faith exception that will exempt people um, who are really trying their best but coming up short from being prosecuted as criminals under the statute. And this is kind of almost like another good faith exception. Um, it basically doesn't require a health or residential care facility or any person providing financial management or supervising financial management for the elderly. Um, so basically, what this was a concern is like, well, what do we do about this? What do we do about the fact that some people need this help um, and, um, and it just doesn't require that? So. Um, this was the idea about concurrent jurisdiction. And um, concurrent jurisdiction sounds like legal gibberish because <laughs> it is kind of legal gibberish words. But what it means is we can work together um, with elderly and adult <laughs> services. And elderly adult services are the civil wing of protecting the elderly and disabled. We're the criminal wing. Um, and sometimes our um, legal obligations, like especially elderly adult services having confidentiality obligations, makes it difficult to share information. So the elderly adult services caseworker might know something that they think we need to know, but they can't share it. Um, but now they can. So we have this concurrent jurisdiction <laughs> to work together. And so many times, a lot of times, the best thing we do is just get the person in a better place. Mm -hmm. We have case after case that we get, and it's a bad situation, and we may not be able to prove the criminal case, but we've gotten the individual being taken advantage of in a better place and a safer place into the future, um, and been able to answer a lot of their questions, a lot of their insecurities, um, and things that they're concerned about. So that's really part of what we do. It isn't just bring crimes. It's this unit is very much, um, and law enforcement are very much interested in making sure people are safe into the future. So that does. So. Penalties. So what do we do? That was one of your initial questions. Like, what do you do to somebody who's violated the statute? And so I, I talked about this a little <laughs> bit earlier. And um, one of the way we classify, and this is really drawn from the way the theft statute works in the state, um, there's different levels of offenses, there's misdemeanors and there's felonies, and then there's two different types of felonies. Um, it's basically a fancy way of determining how much potential jail time a person can face if they were to get the maximum sentence if they're convicted of that crime. So it's all driven by the amount of property and money that's actually taken. So in this state, a Class A felony is a crime that carries a, a maximum sentence of seven and a half to 15 years in the state prison. Um, that is for any uh, exploitation that's $1,500 or more. And I can tell you from you know, my brief experience of working on these cases, they all are. I mean, every single one of them is you know, $20,000, $40,000. Unfortunately, I have a couple right now that I'm looking at that are $100,000, $200,000. Um, if it's $1,000 but doesn't quite rise to $1,500, which I mean, uh, some cases would, I suppose, eventually. Um, <laughs> It's class B felony, that just means that the maximum jail time they could get is three and a half to seven years in the state prison, and that's a class B felony. And then finally, if what they took was less than $1,000, maybe it was just like a one-time thing, 
took a couple hundred dollars or something like that. It's a class A misdemeanor. That means the most jail time the person could do is 12 months and they'd be in the um, local House of Corrections in the county versus the state prison in Concord. Okay, so we'll turn on to types of financial abuse. Um, so we obviously covered the types of financial abuse under the uh, financial exploitation of the elderly, disabled, or impaired adult statute. Um, but then there's a lot of other types. We have other tools in our toolboxes, other laws that may come into play. And you've already heard one, which is criminal trespass. Somebody moves into somebody's house without authority, it's criminal trespass. Um, one of the biggest ones that I'm worried about is fraud associated with becoming joint account holders. Um, I have seen that, and that skirts the statutes pretty quickly, um, because what happens is you have a caregiver, somebody has $30,000 in their account, they need help paying their bills, so they make the caregiver a joint account holder for the purpose of paying the bills. That's not what it says in the bank records. Bank records says they're a joint account holder. So they are a joint account holder. And we've had a number of situations where those joint accounts disappear down to zero. Um, so one of my little tips is if you know somebody who does need assistance in paying bills and, and does want to give somebody check writing authority or things like that, have a separate account. Don't put any more in it than you need to cover the bills or any more that you can risk. So, and you could even have like a reoccurring deposit from another account. So you can have a savings account and once a month $3,000 goes into it. That sounds like a lot of money to me, but you know, you, you can do whatever level you want. It can be $200, it can be $10,000, whatever your bills are. Um, and then that joint account holder can pay bills out of that account, but doesn't have access to the bulk of the estate. So anytime you're seeing joint account holder, everyone should stop and go, do you really want to give this person full authority to withdraw 100% of that tomorrow? Um, and, um, and the whole trust piece, you don't need to. There's no need to put anybody in that position. Nobody should be feel awkward saying, I know you don't need to be a joint account holder in 2500. Create an account for bill paying and they can be a joint account holder on that. If that doesn't make somebody happy, that's a flag. Um, and so that's a flag to say, well, why do they care? All they're helping me is pay bills. Why do they feel the need to be in a different account? The fact of the matter is they simply don't. Banks are working really hard on this as well, and um, the partnerships regarding elder abuse in New Hampshire has a bank representative on it who's been working really hard on this issue. But we're putting banks in pretty difficult positions if we're saying, I mean, you need to make sure you can't put a joint account holder on an account. Like, what's the teller supposed to do? So. Um, the bottom line is we're working with our banking partners as well, but for you, just or any of your friends, that's a flag, stop. Um, other crimes is forging the victim's signatures, um, misusing their money and possessions. Theft still applies to the elderly, applies to all of us. Um, <clears throat> and I've had theft cases of, um, you know, silver being taken. And, um, and I actually, you know, I had one defendant who was 93 when she took the stand. And we actually were like, are you sure you want to do this? And we're talking to her daughters who, are you sure you're okay with your mother doing this? And they were like, oh, you don't go forward with this. You will hear from her. Um, <laughs> and um, she was absolutely fantastic. Defense tried to argue maybe she had Alzheimer's, maybe she forgot. Mm -hmm. And she so quickly put that defense attorney in their place <laughs> um, that the judge and jury were literally laughing. I mean, they were just like, yeah. <laughs> um, but she also had really good evidence that sometimes people don't think of. Um, she was 93, she was still living at home, she did need full-time caregivers, um, 
But the items taken was sterling silver, and it was pawned at a pawn shop. But when you ask her, tell us about your sterling silver, that sterling silver had been in that drawer since 1966. It was a sterling silver she had gotten as a wedding present in 1937. Um, the drawer was made with felt on it, so the sterling silver mm -hmm. wouldn't tarnish. I mean, this was nothing like forgotten, maybe I put it somewhere else and maybe I gave it to somebody. Um, and so that's some of the investigation techniques that we want to make sure we use as law enforcement, that we ask those follow-up questions. Um, in that case, we thought uh, some other platters were taken and they were found in a closet. And everybody was like, oh see, you know, she thought those were taken. Well, A, it's okay to forget that you gave something to somebody. It doesn't mean you're not a victim of theft. And B, what we were able to prove is it was probably the defendant moving them there. What the defendant was doing was moving them room to room and closer to the door. So um, <clears throat> that was a caregiver um, who she immediately told the police she trusted implicitly. It was her other caregiver that she was like, yeah, you better look at that other one. Um, you know, so um, the bottom line is you investigate. You investigate all crimes and you see what evidence you have. And, um, and age isn't an indicator of whether you can testify or not. Um, she did just fine. The defense literally started saying, are you sure you don't have Alzheimer's? And she literally gave him a blow by blow on exactly what Alzheimer's is, that he was clearly ignorant if she thinks Alzheimer's is an age thing. And I mean, just put him right in his place. And so the bottom line is, um, is if you have somebody who's missing things, it might be hard to prove sometimes. But other times, you can get some very clear details. So don't just chalk it up to somebody doesn't remember. Um, and it, you know, that's worth it. Um, the other thing is um, deceiving victims into signing contracts, wills. My very first case when I was still in law school was deceiving somebody into signing a will. I was a law clerk in a law firm and we represented the wife who, and her kids took the husband on a ride and got him to sign everything over to them. Um, gave, gave the mom a life estate in the house, wasn't that kind of them, gave her a life estate in her own house. Uh, we represented the mom and I wanted blood, like I, I was just like, I, I was like, disown them, take them out of your will, like da, da, da. And she was like, that's not my goal. Do they deserve it? They deserve it. Did I raise them with a little too much money? I probably raised them with a little too much money. She and her husband had been very successful, started, you know, working hard and worked hard their whole life. Um, but, um, but she also, that's where in these cases we have other goals. And one of her goals was she had to keep her family together before her spouse passed away. Um, that was one of her goals. And so we as prosecutors need to listen to that. You know, um, the money wasn't important to her. She didn't think her kids should just get it. She didn't think that was, but she also, that was not her primary goal. Her primary goal was somehow reunifying her family and doing it as soon as possible, but also not in a way that was being in denial about what happened. Um, and uh, we were able to achieve that goal. Um, by, in my opinion, giving them more than they deserved, um, but not giving them everything, um, and um, and calling them out on it. Like like we said, they were then called out for what they were, and they had to live with that as well. Um, but um, but that's another thing. Um, credit cards. You'll hear about another case that we had where a family member established over 40 credit cards in their mother's name, mother who had two credit cards in her name. Um, so that's identity fraud. Cashing their checks without their permission. Interfering with the mail. That's another flag. <clears throat> when people are being interfered with their access to the mail. Scams and phone scams and things like that. So we'll go through all those in more detail. Um, we've talked about powers of attorney and joint bank accounts. 
uh, real estate is another situation. And talk about Brandon if you want. Yeah, uh, this is. Um, I, I can't give you too many details because it's an active case I have. But uh, something I, I saw as soon as I started getting into this, um, I've seen it in a couple of different scenarios, is you have um, people that are looking to buy houses don't have the funds to do it, and they identify either an elderly parent or relative or friend <laughs> that has the money, and they approach them with this, uh, this sort of pitch of, why don't we all buy a house and you can come live with us and you can just pay us rent, and you know that way, you know you can you get out of your assisted living facility. It'll be cheaper for you to pay rent. You know we can take care of you. We can provide groceries. We could do every, and you know it sounds great. And then a lot of papers are put in front of the elderly person in the process of you know buying this house, and they're trusting. And turns out they actually bought the house, and they don't find out for you know a year later when you know like Lara just said, you know access to the mail is a big thing. But I, I actually have a case where an elderly person was tricked into unknowingly signing a 30-year mortgage on a house at 85 years old. Oh. And her lovely children lived rent-free for about a year uh, until she checked the mail for the first time. They were out of town, so it gave her the opportunity to check the mail, and you know, lo and behold, there was a mortgage statement in her name. Mm -hmm. So it was, they had also made her power of attorney. She had also made them power of attorney, and all of her bank accounts had been completed oh. at that point. But uh, this is... The second time that I've seen this sort of scenario, it's a little bit different than the other one, but people identify an elderly person as having what they need, which is the assets to purchase real estate, and they either trick them into thinking that they're buying it and the elderly person is just paying them rent, or you know they pressure the elderly person into actually you know purchasing the house for them and you know allowing them to live there, and then once once they're in the house. You know, the elderly person sort of pushed down to the basement where they get to live, and then they just treat it like it's their own house. So it's something that you know it doesn't happen as much as the other types happen, but it is something that we are seeing at least with some frequency. I've also had reports of houses being sold. So um, the um, the senior has a house, free and clear, and it's sold to another family member for way less than value, and the other family members don't even know. So there's a question um, as to whether they, when something sold way below value, bad assets basically have been taken from them. Um, and so, you know, that, that's another scenario that I've had reported to me um, with other family members calling up going, oh my gosh. There are certain things like with, with housing, there's a fraud alerts, our registry of deeds in Grafton County. Um, if you just, if you have any property in Grafton County, you can put a fraud alert on that property. Or if anything happens with that property, any filings, you get an email or a phone call, the number they have on file. So um, that's just kind of a nice way of knowing. And I had refinanced my house, and I got the email. I was like, oh my god, it works. Like I had totally forgotten that I had signed up for it. Um, but just something as simple as refinancing, you get that written thing saying, hey, are you aware this paperwork's been filed on your real property? So that's another resource. So is that something anybody would do, or do you have to be suspicious? Anybody uh, can, I can actually, I'll give the Aging Resource Center, and we, can, we have your emails or any ways to reach out to you. There's a little pamphlet. It is free to anybody in Grafton County. All you have to do is give them, say, just sign up for Fraud Alert. I think I gave them an email, and the form had like three lines in it. That's why I'd kind of forgotten about it. This was not a difficult <laughs> thing to sign up for. It was like almost baby step signing up for it. Even I could do it. Um, and basically, yeah, you just basically said, here's my deed. If anything happens on this property, please email this email address. 
And if I change my email address, that's one of those things you have to remember to update because like those those miscellaneous things you forget, <laughs> forget about. But yeah, it's simple, simple, simple. You can even call the Registry of Deeds and I can get the phone number um, and ask them about the fraud alert. So it's really easy. And you know, we also see very commonly, sort of in the same scenarios we see joint bank accounts, um, credit cards, elderly person often doesn't use credit cards very <coughs> frequently. But oftentimes, you know, if you know somebody is living with an elderly person, they'll, you know, they if they have access to their personal information, social security number, name, uh, date of birth, they can open credit cards in their name. They can do it online, and uh, you know, a lot of elderly people are not computer literate, so would not know how to go online and open a credit card, and therefore they don't get the statements, they don't, you know, get the emails, they don't when the thing comes in the mail for Discover card, they assume it's for somebody else because they don't have a Discover card. And you know, meanwhile, it's as simple as opening a card in somebody else's name and then putting yourself on as an authorized user. And then you have free access to a line of credit that's racking up in somebody else's name, which is unfortunately something I've, I've also seen quite a bit of. Yeah, and so we've, we've talked about the joint bank accounts, so I'll go past this slide. Um, credit cards, that is a case that we had um, in Grafton County um, out of Can the town of Canaan. The officer did a fantastic job investigating it. But it was a um, you know, wonderful senior um, whose daughter and granddaughter moved in with her. Um, I believe it was the granddaughter was actually being paid to be her caretaker by the state of New Hampshire, so they're actually getting compensated for that as well. Um, and the long and short of it is um, the senior began to get isolated, and her, her sister began to know that. The senior's sister began to notice that she was just getting isolated more. She was home more. She wasn't allowed out more. Um, and the senior noticed bills coming in, very, very bright. Um, and, but they would grab the mail from her, not let her see the mail, and tell her it wasn't her business. When she would go out to try to get the mail, they'd basically say, no, 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 we get the mail. You don't get the mail. So they, they began to isolate her, but they restricted her from mail. And anytime you hear that, that's another flag. And maybe there's a reason they don't want someone slipping and falling and there's this bad path to get to the mailbox. I'm not saying a flag means there's a crime. But those are what I call flags where you go, oh, I want to look into this. So if you have someone that says, oh, I didn't get your card, I don't get my mail. Okay, flag. Um, so basically an, her, another family member called the police and said, we just don't see her as much. She doesn't seem happy. She seems to be isolated. The police did a really good job and that's why when you call the police, you can ask this to say, I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't even want to accuse anybody of anything. But I'm just worried about her. Can you do a welfare check? And so the police officer kind of just pulled her aside and said, hey, I want to talk to you. And the granddaughter was kind of like looming, and the officer was like, no, I'm good. Thanks. You can go over there. Um, and just said, how you doing? And she began whispering to the officer going, I'm really worried, and I don't get my mail, and they don't let me out of my bedroom. And OK, great. So the officer took that information. Um, a friend helped her run her credit report, and this is someone who had two credit cards that she knew about. She had 43 credit cards. Oh, no, I think it's like, oh, yeah, no, 43 credit cards. The total outstanding balance on those credit cards in her name was $46,000. Um, and we went through all the credit and getting her credit fixed and tracking down 43 credit cards and everything else, but her daughter, mostly her granddaughter, were opening up credit cards under her name for just about everything. And so theft. That was pure old fraud, you know. So I know some credit cards are easier to get than others, but isn't there some kind of process that these credit card companies use to see how much credit is out there? 
I mean, you know, because like the limit, of like if you've got credit cards in like, you know, $20,000 limit here, $20,000 limit here, and all those limits together go way above your annual thing you're reporting, there's no way that these cards check against each other. That's pretty in bad. This case. And, you know, yeah. you know and I always tell the story of um, after college, I joined the Jesuit Volunteer Corps and Conquered Peace Corps for the United States. And my, my salary was a dollar a year mm -hmm. um, in free housing. So we saw, um, my roommates and I saw JCPenney had free coolers if you signed oh. up for a credit card. So we wanted the free coolers, so we signed up for the credit card. And we lawfully listed our income as, you know, 12 cents a month. Yeah. And we all got credit cards, yeah. like every last one of us. I was like, why would anybody have given a credit card to us? Um, we filled it out truthfully, we filled it out honestly. Um, you go online, you fill out credit cards, a lot of credit card companies do these $3,000 limits. I mean, you, you go shopping at a, a department store and they tell you right there at the table, do you want a, do you want a credit card? And they give you 3000 bucks. You know, I mean, unfortunately, um, unfortunately that's the system. Um, you know, and, and then the credit card company is the one owed the money a lot of times. Sometimes we can make it where they'll reimburse the person or, or at least stop charging them. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work. It is not a simple process. Mm -hmm. So credit cards, I hate the fact that in the mail, I always worry about, I don't know why more people, well, actually, lots of people do this. They'll go in your mailbox and they'll see you discover a card and they'll fill it out for you. Um, you go online, you tell them where to put the statements, and you send them to a different location. Um, so definitely checking your credit report. I'm horrible at doing it for myself. I have a goal of at least once a year, but I generally meet like not once a year, um, you know, even knowing that I should. But really checking your credit is, is, is almost vital in this day and age, unfortunately. So, so um, that was that case. Um, Loans, um, that was another case, and that was the person who testified in front of the legislature. Um, he was new in town. His wife had passed away um, un unexpectedly, very unexpectedly. So he was new in town, he was lonely, um, and he connected with his church. And uh, the church is a wonderful church. And unfortunately, um, a member of the parish um, was just I, I absolute criminal. But what he did was he said, my business needs a loan. Can you help me? I'm finishing up this house. Please help me with that money to help me finish up the house and then I can pay you back. And he trusted him. Um, now what we do know is that defendant um, had money for his daughter's wedding, which was ended up being a huge wedding. He had money to go on trips. Um, he had money to do other things. But um, in front of the jury, his defense was simple, which is I asked for a business loan. My business went under, I went bankrupt and pay him back. And I felt that the jury in that case, in finding him not guilty, didn't like finding him not guilty. But we couldn't show at the time he took the money, the time he took the loan, he had a purpose to permanently deprive him. Our evidence was weak on that. Our evidence was he's a total dirtbag. Um, and that isn't, you know, I mean, like we had evidence. I mean, we had evidence that he had other money, that he was spending money on personal things. But the law lets you spend money on personal things. The law lets you get business loans. Now, under the new statute, I don't think that could happen as easily because basically he got something from the senior for nothing. And whenever you have that, you start to be able to question and look into the exploitation and was he taking advantage of him. And under the gestalt of things, theft doesn't talk about taking advantage as much, 
you know, with the situation that that person was in. He was taking advantage of a very, very nice man. And he took all of his savings. There was another person in town that he got $100,000 from. That person was very wealthy. And that person even felt bad because he was like, don't worry about my restitution. I have more resources. So I technically had more money taken, but I know that other gentleman had so, has so much less resources. But it was about $50,000, but that was what he had left. And gone. And the guy then just, as soon as the money was gone, he filed for bankruptcy. Stopped going to church, stopped being friends with them. It, you know, it just was complete and total crook. Um, but, um, but after that not guilty verdict, we brought, he came to the legislature and testified. And I think he gave us a letter. But he um, was part of kind of trying to get new laws changed. Um, and I, he's let us tell his story. That's something he's authorized us to do. Um, identity theft, um, across, it's across the nation is a problem. And, it, and it's no different with the elderly, except um, same thing, do you run credit reports? I'm horrible at it. But um, you know, um, people that aren't as computer literate. Um, my mom, much more computer literate than me. Um, <laughs> she is. So again, it's not necessarily a generational thing. But my gram, she hated computers. Like she thought they were this, and she's right. <laughs> I'm right with her. Um, you know, and so, yeah. Is that the way you recommend to get the credit reports, is to do it online? Because I know in the old days we used to go and just go to the place and get the reports. Can we still do that? There's three companies that run credit reports for the most part, and you can get them mostly for free, and so we can get that information about how to run a credit report. We can pull it before we leave today. So you do you can know get one free about? a year. Yeah, Experian. And Experian. I can't remember the Trans Experian. There's three companies that do it. But can um, you do it through the mail or something? I, I, I was a programmer for 40-something years, yeah. so I'm computer literate. Yeah. But I don't like to do a lot of things online, and I've been reluctant to do that online. It's not that I can't, yeah. because there's some place I can go to. I, I just got an email from my accountant that he was hacked, so yeah. uh, you know, I don't think any of them is safe online. Personally. I can address that because yeah. I don't like computers as well, and yeah. there are 1-800 numbers you can call, and they will do the report and then send you the report in the mail. I've done that. Yeah, that's, that's great. We can get those numbers and make sure they're available, because I'm right with you. Um, you know, anything online is in the cloud. Anything in the cloud, somebody can get. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that, yeah. you know. Um, and that's why some of the bill paying, you know, I'm totally fine with people that go, I still want to do it by check. I, I get the convenience of it online, the automatic deductions. I just don't want to go there. Or if you do go there, have it in an account that has a limited amount of money and no overdraft. So worst case scenario, somebody hacks in your account and gets $1,000 but they're not going to be able to overdraft it, they're not going to be, you know what I mean? So you want to set, if you do some things online for convenience purposes, don't put $10,000 in that account. Um, you know, um, put whatever amount you can afford to lose, you know, and, and, and leave it at that, so. But a 12.6 million victims of identity fraud in the United States. Um, I have somebody, um, they just told me they did, their last name is Johnson, so it's a relatively common name, and they got their credit report. There were three people using their social security number. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, and, and, and he had absolutely no idea. It was just great. Um, so he's unraveling that right now. Um, $21 billion. It's just, it's, it's, and it's a world economy. Um, I had one where, um, 
I was being good. My computer was on, the pop-up came up saying my antivirus protection was running out and did I want to renew my antivirus protection? And I said, yes. I clicked on it, I signed up, I got the gold one, I splurged, and a couple minutes later I got the confirmation and I saw it said England. And I went, oh, oh no. And sure enough, it wasn't, it was a, it was a fake pop-up. It looked just like anti-Norton virus. Um, it was an anti-Norton virus. I, I mean, fortunately, I caught that, and I immediately canceled that credit card and went through all that process. That's how simple it is. I mean, you know, um, in a matter of 10 seconds, um, they had my credit card information, so. Um, telltale signs of exploitation. These are some of the things you want to look for. Um, unpaid or overdue bills, utility shuts off, excessive banking, um, excessive credit card activities, disparity between income, assets, and lifestyle, evasion, evasiveness or confusion, constant companionship, increased social isolation or sudden estrangement, abrupt and unexpected changes in the will, trust, change in physical appearance or personal hygiene. I mean, really anything that you can think of um, is, is a potential flag that you notice and go, huh, and I always call it my spidey's coming up, you know, you just go, this doesn't feel right. We can look into those things without accusing anybody of anything. You know what I mean? Like, you can just kind of look into it and just see what's going on. And that's where the victim advocacy program is so important as well. We can give you know, tips about what you can do to follow up. I'm a huge fan of, on my list, my to-do list, is, is walking and training beauticians. Uh, because that's somebody who sees people regularly, whether for anybody, seniors, domestic violence, anything. Um, they know people, they know change of behavior, they see them regularly, and they're a good person to go, geez, you know what, I want to come out their hair and they got really sore. Um, or they seemed really sad. Or, you know, it's just fantastic people who have personal contact. Um, people in church, if someone stops going to church, that's a flag. The church community will reach out. Um, you know, so I'm always kind of looking for, for those sort of things, things that people regularly do. Um, going to the River Valley Club, you know, just anything that someone does on a regular basis that all of a sudden they stop doing. And it might be they just decided they prefer hiking the woods and working out in a facility. But it's okay checking into it and, um, and seeing if any more flags come up. Um, and again, accessing assistance if you think you might be a victim or know a victim. Um, contacting local law enforcement, either local police departments, contacting the Attorney General's office, contacting the Bureau of Elderly Adult Services, this is their 1-800 number. Um, a lot of times, you know, everyone says, well, which should I start with first? And I always say what you're comfortable with. Um, I'm the Grafton County Attorney. We have tons of small towns where if your car is in front of a local law enforcement, everybody knows and starts asking you questions. So I, not just cases involving seniors, domestic violence, things involving children, people don't like going to local law enforcement unless they have some excuse that they can give people when people say, why was your car there? Um, that's okay. You know, what works for you? Other people, they feel very comfortable going to their PD. Um, they've known the chief forever. They can say, ah, I was just dropping off some you know, water as a goodwill gesture. They're very, they feel very comfortable doing it. Other people say, I want people to know I'm in trouble. I want them to see my car and go, what's up? How can I help? So it's a very personal thing is the bottom line. And, um, and it's very much whatever works for you. Um, we have a statewide resource little handout here. We're updating this, but it also includes service link 
and the New Hampshire Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. Um, and the reason why we include those is like our, our advocacy programs, every county has an advocacy program and they're all confidential. So you can, anybody can call them confidentially and run an idea by them. I'm thinking of going to the police but I'm nervous. Um, you know, it's a family member but I care about it. What's gonna happen to me? Um, I live in the North Country, I live in Benton, which is a tiny, tiny town. Oh gosh, it just dead up. <laughs> um, and, um, and I do feel, um, I, I love our county nursing home, um, and I love it because I think so many people have family members there that work there. Um, but some people just are very concerned about going into a nursing home. It's just not what they want to do. Um, so they'll stay in their home in a very bad situation because it's better than the unknown. And a lot of that is a little bit about the education involving it. Uh, my grandma was at her house until 104. Um, with no help, <laughs> and she was not interested in any help, and and uh, and just a fantastic person. Um, but um, but there was a point in time where we were kind of like, okay, can we at least visit some places, <laughs> you know? And 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 she was open to that. Um, and um, and can we have someone come and at least do the vacuuming on the staircase? <laughs> like, can you please not vacuum the stairs, at least, Graham. Um, you know, so the, you know, everyone's different. Um, you know, I, I had another family member that loved the assisted living they went to. I wish they had gone there 10 years earlier, thought it was the greatest place, just loved the companionship, loved the activities, loved not to be worried about plowing. Um, everyone's different, but there are resources to explore other options for people that are concerned about a change, um, because that can be a concern. You know, where do you go from here? Um, and the unknown is sometimes frightening, um, and that's understandable, so. One other thing about reporting, um, the Bureau of Elder Adult Services, for, for anybody that, you know, maybe suspects that something is going on, sees some red flags, but, you know, isn't really confident enough to, if you call the police, it's an intimidating thing to call the police, especially, what if you're wrong? You know, what if that person is not committing a crime and now you have a criminal investigation against the person? The Bureau of Elder Adult Services, if a report is made to them, the report comes to my office, it goes to the county attorney's office, but they do their own investigation, and that's not a criminal investigation. It's a purely civil investigation, and we often wait for them to finish or work closely with them while they're doing their investigations before we really get rolling on the criminal piece of it. So the Bureau of Elder Adult Services can investigate a claim, they can meet with the person, um, ask them what's going on. Oftentimes, you know, I keep track of more of these things than I care to admit at this point. Um, oftentimes it's not. It's unfounded, it's a misunderstanding, and you know, the BAS worker is able to call me, or call Lara, or call the local law enforcement and say, you know, this complaint is unfounded, you know, it's, it's not a crime, you know, we're closing our investigation, and then, you know, nobody has to call the police. Nobody has to, you know, have that fear of risking, you know, getting the police involved in something, or embarrassment, or, you know, isolating a family member, that kind of thing. So if, if anybody's ever, you know, suspects maybe something's going on, but if they're not quite confident enough that, you know, a crime is being committed or they have any reservations, the Bureau of Elder Adult Services is a great resource. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that they investigate every single day. And do you mind mentioning about the mandatory reporting? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, under the, the new law and part of, you know, um, enhancing elder protections in this state, Everybody in the state is now a mandatory reporter of elder abuse and exploitation. What that means is if you suspect something, report it. You have to report it. Bees is the best place to report it. BEAS is Bureau of Elder Adult Services. 
I keep calling them fees. It's easier. Um, but it's mandatory now. It's similar to um, child abuse. Child abuse is the mandatory report. So is elder abuse. So if you see something going on, call the El Bureau of Elder Adult Services. It's actually a crime not to. It's a misdemeanor offense to not report um, if you suspect abuse is going on. Um, this is just a slide that we wanted to point out that 75% um, of elder financial abuse is done by someone in the immediate family. Um, you know, and again, I hate to kind of be like the don't trust your family um, because that obviously isn't the message. Um, we love our families. Um, but the flags, you know, um, lo looking at the flags. And why are seniors tar targeted? We talked about this in the beginning, um, but one statistic that surprised me was Americans over the age of 65 control nearly 15 trillion, trillion in assets. Um, and um, the estimate is 2.6 billion from financial abuse. Um, and I think a lot of it is people forgive family members for doing something wrong. And I think that, that that's a, a lot of it. It doesn't get reported because they decide they're gonna let it go. Um, but I think another reason, too, that we see is on that notion of polite, trusting, and generous. And we'll go into some of the phone scams, but the phone scammers target seniors. Like, if you, in case you're wondering, they are targeting seniors. You are more polite. You're less likely to just I'm hang up the phone. <laughs> yeah. Nor should you be. Just go. <laughs> yeah. And, and once you talk to one, they network it with all their friends. So if there's one person that you're talking to, and they're like, okay, I got 50 bucks pretending I was the Benevolent Police Chiefs Association right. in New Hampshire, which doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> you know, they're like, got him, got him, this person. Mm -hmm. And you're on that list for other scam artists. I don't know if they sell the list to each other or what they do. Um, but I always, um, I always do what I, like I, what I try to do sometimes too, because I hate like just hanging up on people. But I have that line where I just go, I am not interested in talking to you, thank you, click. I just spit it out and I click. You know, um, just don't get engaged in the conversation. If it's a legitimate call, they will not be asking for any financial information. There is no credit card company that will call you and ask you to confirm the expiration date on your credit card. There is no bank that's gonna ask you about anything. Um, so, but, but if it is, I had one person call me on a credit card and I said, can I have your number so I can call you back? And, and it was like, well, you know, we're, we, we're a call center out of India. And I was like, click. And you know. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, the first it was like, oh, your credit card has a, a suspicious activity. And can you just confirm the last four digits? And the second I heard, can you confirm the last four digits? I was like, I'll call you back, Bank of America. Yeah. Um, can you tell me which person you are and how to reach you? Oh, well, called Bank of America. They, they were like, no, 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 no. So you just, anything over the phone is most likely not legitimate. <laughs> Simple as that. Um, donating money, you know, I say the same thing, which is I have the entities that I already donate to. Thank you. Click. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, and and then I, then we do that. We we know we know how to reach organizations we want to donate to. Mm -hmm. Nobody stranger should be contacting us. Um, we we can't confirm that. So, um, but the bottom line is um, is is it is that polite. You know, my kid would have no qualms telling someone to pound sand, which is a, not a strength of his. Um, <laughs> you know? um, but it does mean he's less likely to be conned. Um, so. um, this is my biggest concern, though, and this is where I was worried about my gram. Um, 
is they're worried that people are going to think they can't care for themselves and they're going to lose their control over their life. Um, you know, that, that's the number one thing. My grandfather, when he had to lose his license, you know, it was horrible. It was, it was, it was horrible because he, he felt, and you know, that was the first step. Um, my gram, you know, she did not want to move from her house, so we needed to fix the roof. She did not want us fixing the roof, and she didn't want us fixing the roof because my grandfather was a carpenter. Um, she knew how to build things. She knew they built their house in 1937. She knew when we took the roof off, the roof was not going to look good underneath. Um, and so she was very much like, yeah, no, it was. I literally had to call New Canaan, Connecticut, and be like, if you're over 100, can I have a dispensation and have a metal roof, please? We just put a metal roof on top of the house. Um, the zoning doesn't apply to people over 100 rule, <laughs> you know. Um, but, um, but, you know, that, I think that's one of the biggest issues, is people don't want to admit they've been scammed. Um, that is like it for everyone. That, that is like it for 18-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, 100-year-olds, is, is you just hate to have to admit that. Um, but that's one of the things, that's why our victim witness program is so important. I, I can't emphasize Sunny enough because that's, that's to explain that. Okay. And if Sunny were here, you'd see why. Um, she is someone who is very fitting of her name. She is a total calming, warming, humorous presence that you know, I think makes a lot of victims very comfortable. And it's much easier for them to talk to Sonny than it is for them to talk to a police officer with a gun and a badge sitting in front of them. And you know, Sonny um, wanted to be here today um, to tell her about the work that she does. You know, I work with her every day. She uh, does a wonderful job with you know, talking to these people, understanding these people getting them to be comfortable with the idea of, you know, just because you report doesn't mean anybody's going to think any less of you, doesn't mean that you're going to be put in a home. You know, it's really about getting the word out and holding these people accountable. And Sunny is very good at having that conversation and, you know, really is a, a very strong asset to the Attorney General's office in our attempts to, to move forward on these types of cases and get these victims to a point where they are able to accept what happened to them able and willing to go public with what happened to them and you know, ultimately end up uh, comfortable with the idea of facing that person in a court and you know, telling a jury what they did. Yeah. And then also looking at the other resources available. So Sunny can also mm -hmm. help with other resources that are out there. Um, this is part of the Victims' Bill of Rights and that's the purple, the light lavender pamphlet I gave you. But um, people who are parts of, one of the things that Sunny ensures is the Victims' Bill of Rights is complied with. And these are just some of the things. But it's the right to be treated with fairness and respect, the right to be kept informed of the criminal justice process, the right to be free from intimidation and reasonably protected throughout the criminal justice process, the right to financial exploita uh, restitution, and the right to be present and heard during sentencing hearings. So those are rights, those are just some of the rights that she makes sure are upheld throughout the process. Scams, you know, they, they come in so many different forms. Um, one that we've seen, what other grandparent one, or what's the to do? Um, <laughs> this, I, I, I hate to do this because it's such a downer, but how many people have received one of these scam calls? Well, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. I The last time I went, it was almost 100% of people in the room raised their hands. Um, they're everywhere. And if you haven't gotten one, you will get one, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Well, the IRS one is ridiculous. And yeah. it really makes people nervous. 
And I, I constantly tell all my friends, never, ever, ever, just like hang up. No IRS is going to call. And they even put the word out with that. And people <coughs> still get so nervous when they hear IRS on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, or or that we have an arrest warrant out for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a common one in Grafton County right oh, now. Man, oh, man, I'm going to get that one. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I talked a little bit about a couple of these. <laughs> but, you know, one big takeaway that I like to make sure everybody's aware of is that these are the ones that are here this week and next week and maybe a little bit after that, but then there'll be all new ones. And these, this is a real big business where these terrible people sit around and think of new ways to trick people into giving them money. And when one way stops working, they come up with another way. And they're not stupid. They're actually very, very intelligent people that have gotten this down to a science. And they have a script. They have um, physical you know, evidence that they'll use. I, I, I can tell you in the, the romance scam one, it's like an online dating thing where you, you meet somebody online and they build up a relationship with you. They you know, t tell them everything that they want to hear. You know, uh, they're obviously you know, in Europe or something, you know, so mm -hmm. far away. And they say, you know, you, you know, I love you. I'm gonna move with you. We can spend the rest of our lives together. And they pick a date, and they, you know, I'm gonna get on a plane, and then you're gonna meet me at the airport, right? And then on the day they're supposed to come, something happens. Their car is towed. You know, there's a car accident. There's some sort of medical emergency, and they need money. And they send pictures of a car, you know, that's totaled. They say, look, this is what happened to my car. I need five thousand dollars to get a new car to drive to the airport. <laughs> And then the $5,000 goes in. It's, oh, you know, my plane ticket, you know, I, I need to get another plane ticket. I don't have any money because, you know, of all the medical bills I incurred. And can you help pay with my medical bills or help buy me a plane ticket? And when people catch on to it and start to show resistance, I had an elderly woman that came in and met with us recently and showed us the letters that she received from this person. They get nasty. They get mean, they get aggressive, they threaten them, they tell them, you know, this is your last chance at true love, you'll die alone if you're, <laughs> this is the only way I can come, this is the only way we can be together. Uh -huh. And once you're caught up in that, it's very, very difficult to get out. Um, now, I have a question about the phone. So we still have a landline, so, you know, we get the calls and I just hang up, whatever. But um, I get calls sometimes on my cell phone that are some number from who knows where, and I just never pick up if I don't recognize the number, but are they targeting cell phones oh, yeah. as well as Absolutely. the landlines? Okay, I was just curious. Yep. Oh, yeah, I've gotten calls. So people will, ju just people who always pick up every call will do that and listen? Okay. Yeah. They will be calling? Pardon? So they have robocalling? Oh, I figured, calling. yeah. And so they'll just, just keep dialing, their, their computer will dial, and then someone up, picks yeah. up, and then they'll grab it. Uh, yeah. so. so this grandparent one is one of the more particularly egregious ones I've seen. Uh, because of the internet and because information is so widely accessible, um, these people through Facebook or through you know, some of these other websites where you, you know, they list you know, family trees, they're able to instantly identify an elderly person and find out what, how many grandchildren they have, what their gender is, what their age is, what their name is, and then they call and they tailor their spiel to sound like and provide information about the grandchild so they can pretend and convince the elderly person that they are their grandchild and they're in some sort of trouble that needs money. And you know they use the names, they're able to reference the parents' names, the siblings' names, and when you hear, you know, hey, it's you know, Sam, I'm in trouble, please don't tell mom, and it's a voice that to an elderly person could very easily be their grandson. No elderly person who doesn't know about this stuff thinks, I wonder if this is a scam. Of course not. Their first instinct is to help their grandson. Yeah. And 
boy, an awful lot of money goes out through these That's types horrible. of scams. So, you know, what the, 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 <coughs> we, we met with a couple out in Rye a, a few weeks ago, one of the most you know, intelligent and, you know, wonderful people we've ever met, that you just got caught up in this. And they sent probably like $4,000 before they realized. But we sat down with them and we talked about, you know, how to prevent it in the future. And really the best system that we came up with came out of that meeting. And, you know, if you are going to take calls from people that you know, are going to be in your family and they're going to you know, ask you for money, come up with a family password. You know, it could be anything, but just have the whole family knows this is the password and you know, understand that you know, if there's a phone call, you know, I might ask you for the password. If it sounds suspicious, you know, hi, this is Sam, I need money. Okay, what's the password? They'll just hang up. Because they can't find the password online. It's the one thing they can't get. And you know, if it actually is the grants, they'll know the password. They'll say, you know, orange or whatever it is. And you know, that way you can be sure. And I, I, you know, that and you know, the best advice, really the easiest way to avoid this at all is have call ID and an answering machine. And if you don't recognize the number, let it go to the answering machine. And if it's important, somebody's going to leave a message. And if it's a scam, they're not. They're going to move on to the next person because they can't. You know, they're not going to waste their time waiting for someone to call them back. They're just going to call the next number on their list. So really, just uh, I, I, a lot of us, including myself, have this you know knee-jerk reaction when the phone rings. If you want to answer it, you're curious, you want to see who's on the other line, even if you don't recognize the number. You always think it could be important. It could be somebody you know with something urgent. And so a lot of people, their initial response is to answer the phone. I think if we can all change that and only answer the phone if we can tell who it is, mm -hmm. and then let the let voicemail, let an answering machine, you know, use that as a tool for if you know it's an unknown number calling me and it's important, they'll leave a message and then you can call them back. If you don't get on the phone with them, if people don't get on the phone with these people, it takes all their power away and it destroys their business. So uh, you know, as a society, I think that's the best way that we can combat this.